0: On October 13, 2016, the Ash Center for Democratic Governance and Innovation hosted a conference titled Race and Justice in the Age of Obama. This podcast is a recording of the panel titled The State of Civil Rights Under Obama. Panelists included Megan Ming Francis, Assistant Professor in the Department of Political Science at the University of Washington, Matthew Goodrell, Professor of Africana Studies and American Studies and Chair of American Studies at Brown University, Clarissa Martinez de Castro, Deputy Vice President, Office of Research Advocacy and Legislation at the National Council of La Raza, Ronald S. Sullivan Jr., Clinical Professor of Law and Director of the Criminal Justice Institute at Harvard Law School, and Heather Ann Thompson, Professor of Afro-American and African Studies History at the University of Michigan. Moderating this panel was Douglas Blackman, host and executive producer of American Forum at the Miller Center at the University of Virginia.
1: Okay, so hi everyone, my name is Khalil Mohammed, and uh, it's a real pleasure uh, to be here and to introduce our next panel. Um, I was so enthralled by everything that happened in the first uh, two hours that I forgot I had a uh, little part to play in this next section. So. Forgive me for this uh, unplanned delay. I'm gonna introduce our moderator and let him take it from there. Our moderator is Douglas Blackman, the Pulitzer Prize-winning author of Slavery by Another Name, The Enslavement of Black Americans from the Civil War to World War II, and co-executive producer of the acclaimed PBS documentary based on the same name. Uh, I'll also add he's a friend and a colleague. He is also a contributing correspondent at the Washington Post and executive producer and host of American Forum, a public affairs program produced by the University of Virginia's Miller Center and aired on 100 airs on 100 public television affiliates across the United States. Uh, his book is an important book in helping to frame how we understand historically uh, the long journey uh, from uh, the period of convict leasing uh, to uh, the great. Uh, epic affordism. Uh, those raw materials didn't make their way uh, to Detroit uh, by osmosis, but in fact, uh, by the unfree labor of uh, African Americans in private lease contracts, a story that uh, is haunting and all too uh, connected to our contemporary crisis of mass incarceration. Uh, there's a lot more to say uh, about Mr. Blackman, and it's wonderfully detailed here. Uh, and so if you want to know more, I'll share it with you. But for now, in the interest of uh, moving forward, uh, read his book, watch the documentary, and uh, and pay close attention to what everyone has to say now. Thank you.
2: Thank you,
3: Thank you Khalil. Uh, the uh, Khalil and I first met, in fact, when uh, he when the there was an interview done. Interviews were done with a group of historians, some of which I didn't participate in. Uh, All right. All right, is that better? All right, Okay. It was on before. (laughs) Hope the battery doesn't die. Uh, But yes, Khalil and I met by, I first met him by watching video of an interview I didn't conduct uh, for the documentary film, Slavery by Another Name. Uh, And as I was watching this interview that had been done with uh, Khalil by my collaborator, the great Sam Pollard, uh, one of America's greatest filmmakers and greatest African-American filmmakers, teaches at NYU. Uh, and I called Sam up and I said, who is this cat? Uh, this smart, good looking guy, this brilliant, brilliant voice I didn't know. Uh, and so ever since then, I've been a gigantic fan of Muhammad. But, uh, so it's, it's great to be here, uh, uh, and great to be with such a, a terrific group of people, uh, on this panel and the, and the one that we just heard. Let me, uh, let me just quickly give short bios of, uh, the folks who are up here on the stage. Uh, for efficiency, I'm gonna just do it in the order on that I have here. Uh, by the way, this panel, as you can see in the program, is looks, is to look at the state of civil rights during the Obama presidency and the Obama era. Uh, and so we'll try to focus our conversation really on that rather than the more expansive uh, sort of questions that the previous panel uh, engaged in. But up here with me, we have Megan Ming Francis, an assistant professor at the Department of Political Science at the University of Washington, trained at Princeton. She specializes in the study of American politics, race, constitutional law, the construction of rights and citizenship, post-war civils, Civil War South, the author of Civil Rights and the Making of the Modern American State, and currently working on a project I'm very interested to know more about, uh, examining the role of the criminal justice system in the rebuilding of Southern political Uh, uh, and economic power after the Civil War, so something very closely related to slavery by another name. Matthew Guterl is a historian of race and nation with a focus on U.S. history from the Civil War to the present, professor of Africana Studies and American Studies, and chair of American Studies at Brown University. He's written four books on race in the Progressive Era, Southern Slaveholders in the Caribbean, The history of and cultural context for racial profiling and on the life of josephine i should say the great josephine baker Uh, we also have clarissa martinez de castro is deputy vice president in the office of research advocacy and legislation at the national council of la raza an expert on immigration policy advocacy politics latino issue perspectives latino electorate voter mobilization coalition building currently she oversees the organization's work on immigration and efforts to expand Latino engagement in civic life and public policy debates. I think she's also a graduate of the Kennedy School, where we are. Um, uh, We also have Ron Sullivan, leading theorist in the areas of criminal law, criminal procedure, trial practice and techniques, legal ethics and race theory, faculty director of the Harvard Criminal Justice Institute and the Harvard Trial Advocacy Workshop. Also serves as the first African-American Master in in Harvard's history as Master of Winthrop House at Harvard College, was a founding member and senior fellow of the Jamestown Project. And then Heather Ann Thompson, who I've known for many years now, and something of uh, an emerging celebrity in American um, uh, pop, serious uh, serious history, pop media. That's not the right way, but she's crossing (laughs) over all the boundaries. Quintessential public intellectual all of a sudden. Professor of history in the Department of Afro-American and African Studies, the Residential College of the Department of History at the University of Michigan. She writes about the history as well as current crises of mass incarceration. Uh, Her works appeared in the New York Times, Time, The Atlantic, Salon, uh, Huffington Post, NPR, and elsewhere. And then what I was referring to her very recent book, Blood in the Water, the Attica Prison Uprising of 1971 and its Legacy, is a finalist for the National Book Award and has been something of a sensation this past year. And it's a book that uh, I, I heard her commiserating about it many times at many conferences over many years, wondering, wondering as I once did, will this thing ever be done? Will anyone ever read it? And so, congratulations on the wonderful response that you've gotten. So, with that, uh, why don't we just quickly hear from each of the panelists on this on this topic, uh, and I'll narrow it slightly. But the, we just heard a, a discussion that I would say was pretty, uh, uh, pretty critical, pretty harsh critique in some respects of the lost opportunities or limited successes, perhaps, um, as they were described, of the Obama administration in more general terms about issues of race and broad questions of opportunity. But so how would we compare uh, your assessments of civil rights more specifically uh, in the Obama era against that backdrop of a sense of some lack of fulfillment uh, in terms of the broader questions? That's not to say that that lack of fulfillment is the ultimate summary of what we just heard. But let's juxtapose your your view of progress on civil rights versus the, the critique that we just heard. Uh, and why don't we just start at, at the very end?
4: Well, you know, the, the interesting thing to me is that the question itself um, makes some assumptions um, which relate back to the previous panel about whether there is undue expectations of the first African-American president to then deliver on progress on civil rights or other issues that would be completely unrealistic to expect of anybody else. Um, and, And on the question of civil rights, I think it's similar to, just in general, the expectations of this president coming in, given the state of the country at the time, I remember thinking, you know, this president is is sort of like when you get a new car; it starts devaluing the 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 moment you drive it off the lot, right? Because (laughs) the expectations were just so incredible and so unrealistic. Um, With that said, um, you know, our organization, um, which is the largest Latino civil rights and advocacy organization in the country, um, we were critical of the president on many counts, um, I think probably making stick, although we were not the originators of the title of the reporter in chief, which I understand the president to this day is very sensitive about, uh, but it's factual. Mm-hmm. So what I would say is that um, the same way that people have said in the past it was a Democrat that could have taken welfare reform like Bill Clinton did, however whatever however you may agree or disagree with what he actually did, and we certainly had a number of disagreements on that, or, you know, a Republican is best positioned to move immigration reform, and unfortunately Bush did a push for it but didn't get there, that in some ways it's the reverse of that, right? Uh, with President Obama, I think because immediately there was an attack that he would be a president only of black Americans, that he was very measured in how he would engage issues of race and in sometimes um, openly and aggressively of civil rights, right? It's sort of like them if you do and them if you don't. There's a little bit of that, no question about it. The other, si- the other side of the coin is that in some ways he also um, accepted certain frames that were part of narratives that have been there for a very long time, right? Um, So on immigration, which is an issue that I worked on for a long time, the notion of border security and enforcement and the necessity of leading with enforcement, a regime that frankly has seen nothing but in the last decade. And part of it was a strategy, right? Republicans keep talking about the border is not secure and that they can't trust a Democratic president to enforce the law, so I'm gonna do that to show them and then they can play. I think there was a lot of skepticism about whether that is what would get people to play. So where we end up is having the president who has deported more immigrants than any previous president and Republicans still saying that he's not enforcing the law, right? Um, which I think many of us thought that's been the, the mantra on among some Republicans for the last year, it would continue to be. So, you know, again, accepting certain frames, still trying to figure out how to overcome it, but accepting those And I think that applies in a couple of other areas as well. Now, there were positive things that, although not advanced under a civil rights frame, nevertheless had those kinds of impacts. So Latinos and African-Americans had severe unemployment rates as a result of of the recession and loss of wealth, and those unemployment rates have gone down. There has been, more recently, a move by the Department of Justice to reject the use of private prisons. And that is very significant because, as we know, imprisonment of human beings is a huge moneymaker proposition. And it, interestingly enough, when you started moving away from three strikes, you're out policies, you saw the increased criminalization of immigrants to keep feeding that machine and keep that money making venture going, right? I mean, it is a beautiful business strategy when you think about it. Uh, You've created it. It feeds private and in some cases, public um, pockets. And then you create laws to make sure. It's like if you have a hotel and your city passes a law that says, you know, X amount of beds have to be filled and paid for. And by the way, as government, we're going to pay for some. So imagine the scandal that would be in any other circumstance. So, there's, there's that piece which is important, that, that recent movement, but we should also not forget that the Department of Homeland Security is actually the largest law enforcement entity in the country, and for whom rules that apply as weakly uh, as they may to some police departments, they don't even apply to the Department of Homeland Security, right? So we have then seen that enforcement machine grow. But anyway, I was talking about the positives. So... Healthcare coverage is up significantly. In addition to better um, unemployment rates down, the use of private prisons. I think there's been some sentencing reforms, and on immigration, let's not forget about the DACA program, the first deferred, uh, deferred action for childhood arrivals. Now, in the previous panel, people mentioned that often cited with many presidents who have moved on to do significant pieces of legislation, the make me conversation they've had with advocates at their time. And I think, you know, in some ways, I feel that part of the conversation here is what he should have done on his own. But I think that. Um, that's kind of the wrong context. I, I don't care how well-intentioned a politician is, the make me is always part of the equation. And there and there has certainly been a lot of make me pressure from a lot of different communities, whether it's on criminal justice, on policing, on certainly immigration. Uh, and, and some of the issues that still remain and also were mentioned is jobs and the need to really do some of those policies in a very targeted way. So bringing it back on the civil rights side, I think part of the cautiousness of not falling into the original accusation or the that, that was trying to be made that he would only be a president for some Americans and not others, there was a lot of caution in how to frame certain things or how to lean into certain things. Um, and in many cases, pieces of legislation or fights that we had um, also were lacking in that way. And you could see, and this is not just about the president, but the whole of Congress who is necessary to make laws, you could see in those pieces of legislation, fingerprints of people who were trying to be really careful not to create a backlash about, uh, among white voters. right? So with jobs and other kinds of economic interventions, um, not necessarily targeting them to the most vulnerable communities in needs of job creation. Uh, with tax reform, same thing. The, the vulnerable continue to be on the chopping black, uh, block. Even when you win, you have to continue fighting that fight over and over again. Um, the focus on the middle class, right? I, mean, I think I don't know how many elections we've gone to without talking about the working class who is the majority of Americans. And not only not talking about that, but actually not necessarily a war on poverty, but a war on the poor. And that hasn't been unleashed by the president, but there hasn't been an, been an assertive attempt to challenge that frame. We continue to talk about the middle class and that's aspirational. We all like to talk about the middle class, but I think in that vacuum, the war on being poor has just gotten more vicious. And and you know, it's part of the whole talk about who's unworthy, who's undeserving. And the thing that is incredible to me is that when you're working poor, you have to spend so much energy just trying to survive and make it, that imagine if, that, if, if people had some supports where that energy could be used in the same way that you and I use it sitting here, right? Or those of us who have a connection to that experience. How am I doing on time? time? What do we,
3: yeah, well, let's, let's see if okay. we can move down through the panel now so everybody get a little something of this, this first assessment out, and then we'll mix it up.
5: Um, I'm gonna continue the Dower theme. I think, Uh, and I want to exploit the tension between the title of the conference, which ends with the age of Obama, and the title of the panel, which is under Obama. And I think the tension between those two things, thinking about the sort of zeitgeist of the last eight years, or thinking about what a particular administration or a particular person in that administration can do, makes us answer this question very differently. So if if I'm talking about the age of Obama, uh, the state of civil rights is terrible at the end of it. you know, we've got rollbacks of voting rights and um, reproductive justice is in shambles. Uh, questions of indigenous sovereignty have been challenged uh, and not resolved. We have, uh, that doesn't even get us to the question of policing, the carceral state, the militarization of um, civil authority. And then even scaling out further, you can have the diminishment of the office uh, itself uh, treated disrespectfully by a larger context that has shamed the president um, and shamed his constituency and shamed the issues that he might care about. So I, I, I leave the age of Obama thinking that um, it's been terrible for questions that I care very deeply about personally and politically. And I, and I note that we're 27 days away from an election in which one candidate has called specifically for voter suppression, uh, who cares very little about civil authority and about jurisprudence, uh, and who may well wipe the slate completely clean. So I don't um, I don't feel good right now. I feel anxious. I've only had one cup of coffee, so I can't blame it on that. Uh, and I took my blood pressure medication, but uh, so I think this is a rational assessment of where we are at the end of eight years. All right,
2: Ron. So I'll jump, on, jump in very briefly and uh, piggyback on the last comment to say that I think it's an extraordinarily complicated question, and it's complicated for a couple of reasons, if you think about it on a purely uh, descriptive register, as 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 you did, yes, absolutely, we it's 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 fairly uh, uh, dour. Um, but if we think about the question in, in a different sort of way, it uh, allows for some sense of 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 hope. Uh, so a president can't wave a magic wand and say civil rights repair, right? That. That 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 doesn't happen. Uh, the executive is constrained in in very real ways. Now, one um, uh, uh, sign that uh, that has been um, at least gives me some hope is that this Justice Department and Civil Rights Division has been busier than it's been in any uh, administration uh, prior. Uh, maybe except for Johnson, right? I mean, it's been, it's been, it's been uh, busy. Uh, the laws that Congress passes, though, constrains its reach in very, very real ways. I'll give you one example, and then I'm going to pass it on, and just hopefully we can talk more. Uh, I, there was a mention of Trayvon Martin in the, in the, the last panel. Um, uh, you know, it was the correct decision, for the Department of Justice not to intervene in Trayvon Martin because the law is written in a way that makes it nearly impossible for them to intervene in that way. They have to show that at the time that uh, Zimmerman uh, dealt the death blow, uh, he was uh, motivated uh, solely by racial animus, right? How in the world do you do, do, do prove that? Uh, but that's the law and that's what they are constrained with. Um, uh, similarly, uh, that case uh, wasn't necessarily lost in the trial court because of poor lawyering, uh, it was lost because the law said that you can exercise your right to self-defense in the sort of irrational way that Zimmerman did. Uh, that case was lost because people didn't pay attention when bills were in the state legislature. Right, that's why that case was lost. So, in some sense, um, uh, you know, civil rights has to be viewed in a much in in a broader context, and we have to put pressure on very many actors in the system in order to uh, get to a state that I think uh, that um, most people uh, of goodwill would be comfortable uh, in. Um, Having said that, has this administration done everything that it could have done, uh, given the limitations I just articulated? uh, I think that answer is no, uh, as well.
0: Great.
6: Thanks. Hi, everybody. (laughs) Um, I'm going to try to think about, I'm just going to say something very quick also, Um, but I've never believed that we can really, especially under the Obama era, understand civil rights without understanding that also, and at the same time with uh, with civil liberties, right? And so the things that I really want to talk about right now, and I'm going to say something very quickly about, um, are two things. One, Guantanamo torture and, and drone strikes. Right? These are all, I think, three really important areas that in so many ways have expanded and gotten worse in the last eight years. Um, so I know, and there's, I, I'm sure there's a few lefties up in here, right? Um, but in terms of, Obama ran on a promise to, cl- to close Guantanamo. Over the last six months, he's made, finally, finally, right, huge, I think, important moves to actually close Guantanamo. He will leave, right, office, and Guantanamo will not be closed. But for so long, for seven full years, he released less people who were cleared for release in, in, that were sitting in Guantanamo and also in Bagram than President Bush did. Right? I, I, think it's, I think it's very, very, very important. And it's not because that people hadn't already been cleared by all the national security agencies. Oftentimes, many, many attorneys down there have argued, and I think that they're right, it's because of a lack of will on his part. And the other thing that I think is also important is to think about um, militarization abroad and also different forms of torture in Guantanamo and before that, Bagram now that it's kind of shut down. Um, But the reason why I think it's important to think about that, not just just waterboarding, because we know that is actually something important that ended, um, but these different forms of torture, and I think it's important to think about what is going on in Guantanamo, just not as something that's going on somewhere else in the world, but because so many of our tactics that are practiced abroad always come home to roost, right? And so when we think about the militarization of poli- local police departments here, it's oftentimes, and we know this been because of extra surplus material, mm-hmm. right? That, that that in which we had budgets for over there, but then is then is used. Domestically, we also know, and I think Chicago is going to be the best example of this, right? Is that methods, ideas of how to get information, how to interrogate individuals, some of those tactics have been practiced abroad and then brought home, right? So we can't really ignore what happens in Guantanamo and other areas of the world with, and, and not kind of think about what's going on here. Um, the other thing, and this is, uh, you know, we could talk all day about this, but I'll just say that the other. Uh, the other aspect besides kind of the, the deportator in, in chief is right, the drone king. Um, Barack Obama, in, in his first year in office, um, we of course know that he inherited two ugly wars, right? Um, I mean, in terms of Iraq and, and Afghanistan, but he also expanded dramatically a covert one, right? So, um, dramatically expanded drone strikes in Pakistan and then expanded it before it was not in Yemen and Somalia. Um, And and, and as we know, as many reports have shown, many, many, many civilians have died um, as a result of these drone strikes, right? And the the government has not been held accountable for these significant losses in human lives. Um, The other thing I think is really important, and obviously, what's going on without me obviously saying it explicitly in talking about Guantanamo and also in talking about um, these drone strikes is also... Um, the marginalization of Muslim communities here, right? And th- that, has also been, that has also been a side effect of oftentimes our policies abroad, right? And so we had this, this horrible exchange, this is the last thing I promise, right? This last debate in which Obama, not Obama, excuse me, uh, Hillary Clinton and Trump <clears throat> responded to this question in, in which a citizen raised about the danger that many Muslim Americans feel um, and what, what, if either of the, one of them was president, what would they do to protect um, and or repair this harm? And always we tend to think of it's like, yeah, we're going to have put Muslim Americans on the front line and they're going to report. Yeah. Like, no, like, no, 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 <laughs> right? Like no. That's not the question. Um, and the last, the only last, I promise, this is going to be the last thing now. Um, it was said in the last panel, right, that, uh, Obama has uh, decreased the number of American troops that go abroad. But the reason why that has decreased is because the number of drone strikes has increased. I want to be very clear about that. I mean, I think that's an important also to pay attention to that i there. Thank you. So I'm going to break
7: protocol and actually refer to my notes mostly just so that, so that I, I, my, my head is spinning from the last panel and also here. So many rich things to
3: Those notes to weigh in. Too. Yeah, look at I that. See. It's like wow. complete, complete right.
7: chaos. But, but, it, but in part, I wanted to do that because I think in my assessment, when I think about the assessment of civil rights, uh, either under the presidency of or in the age of Obama, um, I'd like to make some points specific to uh, some policy change, but also make a broader point about um, the federal effort, the broader federal effort to address civil rights crises uh, in the Obama presidency. Um, And I guess I'll start with the big one first and move back to the specifics. I think the broader point that strikes me is that it it really is about the peril. What's being laid bare to me, are the perils of this tinkering around the margins of really fundamentally structural civil rights crises. And so I'm not sure that this is so much a critique of Obama as it is really getting us to think about what this age of Obama and Obama presidency laid bare for us in terms of how limited which is ironic to say in this forum, but, but how, how limited policy responses, in fact, are or can be to um, either immediate civil rights violations, for example, in urban communities with policing, or broader civil rights catastrophes and crises, such as mass incarceration, um, that there's this real disconnect between uh, the plan for change that a policy um, indicates and the the realities of how they're implemented on the ground because of uh, deeply structural um, issues. So just really quickly, just to walk through some of these, now to the specifics, I'm thinking about earlier, we were listening to discussions of the clemencies, for example, a very profound response, on the one hand, profound policy response to uh, the crisis of so many people being caged in America. And more than any other president, uh, in terms of the number of commutations and so forth. But if you read, for example, the letter that Obama sent to those who were whose sentences were commuted, the language is very interesting. Um, one of the sentences was, um, because you have demonstrated your ability to turn your life around. The other sentence was, you have the capacity to make good choices. And to me, that really lays bare, again, mm this disconnect between the policy right response with commutation but the fundamental structural assumption behind it that this is still down to the individual. We have 7.5 million people in this system because of their bad choices and because they have been unable to turn their lives around. So that's just one example of that. The other is this: uh, the, the ending of solitary confinement in juvenile facilities, which, of course, one can do nothing but A, applaud, and B, say, what in the world took us so long to come up with that policy response? Um, and indeed, in the, in the uh, description of why this was necessary, I found it very publicly and profoundly moving that Obama referred to the suicide of Kalief Browder at uh, Rikers as uh, you know demonstrating why this policy change needs to happen. But again, structurally, we did not eliminate solitary confinement from federal prisons because whatever drove Khalif Browder at 22 years old to kill himself is presumably the same psychological trauma that adults throughout mm-hmm. the system are still suffering. Again, this deeply structural assumption about what we're doing. Uh, the two last things I'll say um, so, um, you know, uh, I won't even talk about policing. Well, I'm sure we'll get to that later. Um, <laughs> um, I want to talk about a commitment on the one hand to rein in civil, uh, I'm sorry, criminal justice policies that are deemed to be unjust and civil rights violations, while at the same time expanding what I would view, and certainly my next project is trying to sort out the core of carcerality, which is surveillance. The the ways in which surveillance makes the policing possible, which in turn makes Mm -hmm. the civil rights violations, which in turn makes the crises of mass incarceration, and how at the one hand, on a policy level, we can rein in criminal justice injustice criminal justice injustices, but on the other hand, expand structurally the very mechanisms by which they can exist. And the final one, uh, and I really appreciate this, you know, this question of deportation and immigration, yeah. right? Because again, like sort of like the, the clemency, the commutation kind of argument. Um, On the one hand, supporting the DREAM Act. On the one hand, supporting really kind of profoundly um, self-conscious paths to citizenship and and arguing for decriminalizing what it means to be undocumented. And then on the other hand, having uh, having deported 1.1 million people in three years. But here's what's key about that in the name of criminal justice, right? They're not being deported... Uh, if you listen to public rhetoric, it's because they're criminals, which of course then brings us back full circle Mm -hmm. to the fundamental structural problem. Is this about Obama, per se? Um, You know, I I, I sort of think not at some fundamental level, right? This is about this disconnect at the federal level and the state level between the, the proclamation that policy can fix these things and the deeply structural assumptions that undergirded them in the first place.
3: I'll make a a few comments on this as well. One thing that I don't think the organizers knew when they invited me to to moderate this panel, uh, but that I should disclose, excuse me, is that I'm currently working on a project with Attorney General Holder that hopefully all of you will be able to read in about a year. Uh, sometime in 2018, uh, that is, is an examination of the question of justice and the Obama administration's um, approach to the question of justice, justice in all, in every respect, um, uh, in the age of uh, the presidency of Obama and the age of Obama. Um, and I have also been uh, quite critical at times of many of the same things that uh, that have been expressed here. In fact, once uh, I did an interview with Attorney General Holder while he was still in office, relatively early, uh, on the television show that I. Uh, produced, which, by the way, is distributed by my good friends at WGBH here in Boston, um, uh, and airs locally, I believe, at 6.30 on Saturdays now. We've taken over the slots uh, formerly held by the McLaughlin Group, which <laughs> died with John McLaughlin a few weeks ago. Um, uh, but, the, uh, but I was interviewing Holder for that, and I said to him, you and the President have expressed uh, great concern about mass incarceration, but uh, the fact is you remain as the chief law enforcement officer of the country, the mass incarcerator in chief, uh, and along with him being the deporter in chief. Um, And so so I share a lot of these concerns. At the same time, I think that some of the criticism that we hear is a byproduct of an understandable uh, but unfortunate (laughs) what what historians would call presentism Uh, and and that is, I think there's a failure to comprehend the degree to which civil rights uh, had been somewhat invisibly eroded and degraded in the decade previous to the Obama presidency, the degree to which these legislative actions in state legislatures all across the country uh, that are the primary primary, uh, reason behind the the dramatic rise in mass incarceration. Uh, until Trayvon martin came incident occurred, most Americans had never heard of the stand-your-ground laws in Florida and elsewhere, those kinds of things, which have so complicated any efforts uh, to address some of these issues. The Civil Rights Division and the Justice Department had been hollowed out and eviscerated entirely um, by the time that Holder returns as attorney general. Uh, and so there has been a and also you have at that stage uh, and it's not a political statement but you have uh, driven by the events of 9-11 you have an, an, a presidency that is inclined toward an imp- an imperial approach to begin with <clears throat> that then embraces a tremendously imperial approach uh, and is, is incredibly willing to at breakneck speed um, uh, suspend uh, notions of civil rights and human rights as it relates to detainees at Guantanamo and the interrogation techniques and such and so you have this is a presidency that uh, that begins against a backdrop uh, that most of us did not fully understand the degree to it because to some degree we thought that we thought these issues were okay you know were somewhat okay or we're getting somewhat better in some respects and then Barack Obama is elected president and that seems to be a very reaffirming sign but in reality the structural issues some of the things that Ron is talking about just in terms of the the way the legal system works and the practices and divisions of responsibilities uh, were so complex and so profound, I think that we sometimes are guilty of, of under-acknowledging the, uh, the level of the, the problem that had to be addressed at that time. Uh, one, and one quick indicator of that is that you know, if the president were to commute every federal prisoner uh, in federal prison today, uh, the, you currently have, I think, 2.2 million or thereabouts individuals actually incarcerated out of the 7 million or so who are in the system. Uh, if you got rid of all federal prisoners tomorrow, you would still have about 2 million people uh, in, you know, imprisoned. Uh, and the president has, I think, that the, the up-to-date number is actually 844 commutations and pardons as of last Wednesday, uh, which is more than all presidents uh, Collectively, all, all, in all of time, it's also a kind of meaningless gesture. Um, at the same, and there have been thirteen thousand rejections uh, of, of, of petitions for commutation, but there are thirty-two thousand petitions still under consideration, and there is a furious process underway uh, at the Department of Justice as we speak to process through all thirty-two thousand of those petitions before the end of this year. Uh, Congress most people don't know this, but Congress specifically limited the number of people through a budgeting uh, uh, move uh, the Department of Justice cannot uh, engage I believe the number uh, is more than five people uh, in the process of processing those those thirty two thousand petitions and so there is a you know, so, so again that in a tiny way encapsulates the nature of of the struggle uh, at work here. But it is not beyond the realm of possibility, and uh, this, and, uh, and, and I speak, I'm this is me speaking, I'm not representing anything coming from Eric Holder or the White House it, by any means, but I believe there's a very active question uh, underway of what should happen at the very last, in the final minutes of the Obama administration. Uh, most of those 32,000 petitions will not have been uh, acted upon uh, up to that point, and, It's not completely implausible that there could be a very large number of people whose sentences are commuted at the very last minute. Uh, But all of that is just to say, this is an extraordinarily complicated uh, situation to untangle. And I do think that these huge structural issues, like all of the issues that relate to race in America, uh, these structural uh, elements of the question are far more uh, profound than the question of one particular uh, individual or leader at a time. Um, you guys want to respond at all to one another on any of that? Also, we've, um, I, I think it would make sense to move relatively quickly to questions, but 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 before we do that, um, uh, because I suspect there'll be plenty, but the, uh, I- any thoughts on that? Anybody radically disagree? I mean, here, I, I've offered a mild defense of the Obama administration. Anybody want to excoriate me for that? Or, you know, or excoriate anyone else? Uh, <laughs>
4: no, I, I wouldn't disagree with that. And, and uh, again, I think that there were very undue expectations at the beginning, and this is a longstanding issue. I mean, even in the current context of Donald Trump, um, there's already a number of attempts to try to paint the rise of Donald Trump as a phenomenon that came out of nowhere. Uh, But just like the struggle on civil rights and the erosion that we have seen in that, uh, which includes, by the way, Shelby and driving a stake through the Voting Rights Act. This is going to be the first election where Americans are going to the polls without those protections. And we have seen voter ID laws in a number of places for anybody who was in doubt about what the response to hollowing out the the, the Voting Rights Act would be. But The interesting thing to me about this uh, narrative people are trying to paint that Trump is a phenomenon and Trumpism is a thing like it came out of nowhere is the fact that, you know, Doug Whistle politics have been played for a very long time and there has been an incredible nurturing of anxiety about. Compounded and take advantage of anxiety about the economy, but to feed anxiety about demographic change and what that means and in that aspect, right, we have seen immigration be used as a proxy to stoke fear about the growth of the Latino community because seventy six percent of Latinos in this country are actually United States citizens uh, but The intent or consequence of the immigration debate has been to paint them all as outsiders and therefore not deserving of policy responses or structural fixes, the same way that crime has been used to stoke fear about African-Americans and also Latinos, and frankly, the way that terrorism has been used to stoke fear against Muslim-Americans, right, who, as you mentioned, um, even in the the debate, uh, Trump gave a terrible response, but Clinton wasn't all that much better, right? She said, yeah, you're good as long as you report stuff, right? You're our eyes and ears. So as long as you're agents of the state, you're good. Um, Which led to hashtag Muslims report stuff, which you should all look at, was great. And uh, as a member of the hashtag, that Mexican thing was the best thing that came out of that debate. But... um, but the point to make there also in terms of the expectations and the state of structural needs which are not moving forward because of our inability to govern given the state of Congress, um, among other things, is that this this is not a new thing. And the the, the potential silver lining is like what Trump has done is to make the implicit explicit, right? What has been Doug Whistle politics is now like a blue whale whistle, like the loudest sound you could ever hear. Um, and when at least you recognize, you know, that's there and it's undeniable, then there's an opportunity to grapple with it. But it's an opportunity that, that will not stay there. So we're gonna have to take advantage of that fairly quickly But Donald Trump is a natural, logical response and follow-up to the presidency of an African-American person, right? Because it made real, in a way that is also undeniable, that change that was underway, but now people could feel it. It was in front of their faces, and what we're experiencing is the backlash. There's always been backlash to change in America, even though change is America's currency, and that's kind of what we're grappling with right now, which also has played out in policy making and the ability or inability to move some of those things forward.
2: You know, it's kind of, and it plays out in very, very uh, real ways. Because of this backlash, I just want to pick up. I mean, we live in a, a, a political economy where uh, notions like being tough on crime um, has uh, currency and significant currency. So you know. So so full full disclosure. I, I chaired uh, then Senator Obama's criminal justice policy committee, and, and Holder was on it, and others were on it. Um, um, some of the things that are going on in criminal justice now are absolutely absolutely amazing. Never been never been done before, and probably. Won't be done again. Uh, But at the same token, um, some of these things uh, politicians simply uh, don't want to trumpet, right? I mean, nobody gets elected, you know, saying, you know, if elected, I'm going to let people out of jail, right? It just, for good or real, uh, it doesn't happen. So people cabin messages in certain sorts of ways uh, to be relatively palatable uh, to a larger uh, public. Uh, but actually do uh, the work. Uh, let me give you one quick example since you mentioned uh, clemency, right? Uh, this, this process could go a lot quicker. Uh, one of the reasons that it's going slowly is because the pardon office is looking through each file. Uh, so uh, NYU had a project, Clemency Project did some things. Uh, all of this stuff has been reviewed and there are executive summaries and so forth, but they're looking through each file. Um, um, and one of the things that I think that they're looking for are prior uh, DVs, uh, domestic violence charges. And they're not granting clemency if anyone has a prior DV charge because they don't think the politics will do well. Now, to a room of academics, it's wholly irrelevant. The point is they were sentenced under a regime that they they would not have had this amount of time, no matter what was in their jacket. Uh, had they been sentenced under a more rational regime, or under today's legal rule, but the worst thing for people in political circles is to let someone out and they reoffend, right? So they are being extraordinarily careful, extraordinarily careful. Uh, that's just one example. I see our timer is okay. Oh, <laughs> well, in the. <clears throat>
3: Before we go to the Q and A, real fast, I do want to hear from the, our from uh, Matt and and Megan. In terms of I'm sort of pull a sort of historians' view, you both looked at sort of the post war Southern evolution, which is another kind of a period of efforts at dramatic uh, change to the civil rights regime, and then a, a, a an extraordinary backlash to that period of time. I'm just curious, very briefly, um, to hear from you guys about the just this notion of the almost inevitability, perhaps, in the composition of the way that America works, of that that you're going to go through, after an extraordinary event, such as the election of the first black president, uh, we should have all anticipated, even more so than we did, perhaps, that there would then be this period of sort of astonishing backlash against almost everything that re- related to what we would call racial progress. But, but, it would, but what's your take on that?
5: <clears throat> well, I... Um couple of thoughts. The first is that clearly symbols matter, right? So on substance, Obama as a president is a fairly centrist, if not conservative, bourgeois technocrat. Um, but his symbolism as an African-American president is so powerful uh, that it's given rise to a return of massive resistance, right? So we've witnessed um, a kind of consolidated white supremacist effort to dictate the course of American politics. Uh, that that is dispensed with dog whistles, the likes of which we have not seen since the 1950s and early 1960s. Um, And all because um, the polity is confronted with a symbolic black president um, whose concerns about uh, race-specific issues are um, cryptic, guarded, private, um, maybe deeply felt, but still nevertheless not out front. Um, So that, that, I think, is extraordinary. Uh, It makes you wonder uh, how deeply buried, if at all, the massive resistance was uh, ever. It makes you think about the 80s and 90s, about white supremacist compounds up and down the eastern seaboard and in the Pacific Northwest. Um, It makes me think about the long view of some of these things. So um, dating the militarization of the police back to Bull Connor's tank, um, or before Bull Connor's tank, uh, back to the arming of slave patrols. It makes me think about um, the kind of legal history of um, chattel labor after slavery, following it all, all the way through convict leasing, and then through the efforts of agriculture companies like Big Sugar to incarcerate or capture in some way, shape, or form immigrant labor uh, in, in plant, on plantations or in sites where, um, where uh, the product couldn't be moved a uh, practice that continues to this day in some parts of Florida. So I, I, I think there's a need for a kind of, you know, Mary Frances Berry very um, uh, kindly made a case for a bigger history departments all over the world uh, and for more historians by saying we need more history. And I think that's a great, that's a great call. Um, the challenge of the day is that this is not the constituency that necessarily needs that history. Uh, it's the people who buy those Texas history, te- uh, you know, the yeah. history textbooks coming out of Texas. Uh, and those textbooks aren't written by this people uh, and uh, this group of people, rather, and they aren't for this constituency. Uh, and we have a challenging time getting in the room to shape those those textbooks and that view of history. Yeah, and history doesn't feed a hungry man. I mean,
3: that's that's always the prop, the the, yeah. the, the, the uh, tension between uh, between some of these issues. Maggie, did you have a thought on that? Uh,
6: yeah, I'll say something um, very uh, hopefully quick. Um, so I focus on um, my first book focuses on the NAACP's campaign. Against racial violence, uh, this fight to protect black lives in the early part of the 20th century, so from 1909 um, to 1925. And I document their work in the presidency and Congress, and also this big Supreme Court case in 1923. Um, but what happens after that, right, is the NAACP moving away from a, this very much of a radical campaign to protect black lives from mob violence and lynching in the early part of the 20th century to focus on education. Not that education is not radical, it is. Um, but one of the things I do want to focus on, and I think an untraditional way form of backlash that you see in the contemporary moment that came up during this moment, is that a new project that I'm working on tries to try, tries to look at why this change happened, um, and why, in terms of why rights are rolled back, um, and I I actually kind of locate this change in the role of funders and philanthropies, and so shifting what are often seen as kind of radical movements and diverting them to other causes, um, and so one of the one of the issues that I often try to try to focus on is backlash, not in the forms at least political scientists, which is my home department, actually think about backlash, but backlash in the ways in which private individuals and corporations use their money to roll back rights that other groups have. Mm -hmm. And I think you see that, whether it's the prison industrial complex, right, and or organizations right now, whether it's MALDEF, whether it's NAACP in the post-civil rights era, that have tried to shift focus. Um, And so that's, I think, another, like, a traditional backlash.
3: Yeah. Or right, let's let's take some some questions. Um uh, surely there are some. <laughs> and again a reminder as you heard before let's be sure our the questions have question marks on them. <laughs> 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 uh, and sure let's go right the, the young man there. Um, so I'd like
8: to ask I'd like to give a frame of reference before I ask my question. Um in in specific groups um, of Americans who are less affected i.e. white America by um, these criminal justice issues that we see, there's been a large scale conflation with morality and legality. Um, And because of that, um, I wanted to touch a little bit on sort of the unrealistic expectation some of us had of Obama going in to lobby Congress to ease the war on drugs, specifically um, attempting to lobby Congress to um, uh, declassify marijuana as a class one substance. Um, and I believe that has a very large impact on the um, on the criminal justice mass incarceration that we're seeing. So I would like to to get your guys' opinion of whether that expectation was realistic and if there has been any progression in Which that field.
2: So 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 here's the thing. I'm a, I'm a this is my scholarship. I do I, I do I do criminal law. I'm a, I'm a criminalist. <laughs> uh, the federal level uh, represents the tiniest fraction. Of um, of the uh, practice of criminal law in the country, everything is is, is the overwhelming majority uh, has to do with states uh, for which the federal government has uh, very little relationship. Now, it can do some encouraging things in terms of withholding money, uh, the same way we do with uh, speed limit signs. You know, if you set your speed at fifty five, you'll get federal transportation dollars. We can, the federal government can do some things with money. But mainly, the game is with, with states. Uh, have, having said that, uh, you know, uh, there is a huge conflict now where uh, people reach to criminal law, uh, federal law, and say you know, medicinal marijuana, for example, uh, but it's illegal in uh, the state. And query when federal law and state law and loggerheads on particular issue, uh, uh, who wins. Uh, with that battle, it's usually going to be uh, the state. So my answer to your question is the federal government has limited reach uh, into uh, the criminal justice system because it's mainly uh, a state uh, function Uh, in areas where the federal government does have reach. uh, I think I actually think this administration um, has done an incredible job under um, Eric Holder's leadership primarily and it's continuing um, uh, now, uh, but again, it's a very small fraction. Uh, so I would even uh, just uh, uh, push back someone on, on the characterization of the presidency and offer up uh, a notion that uh, that I think that there is room for pragmatic leadership um, in areas uh, where, uh, you know, bold moral pronouncements. Uh, sound nice, but will have absolutely no effect, zero, nil, on the ground. Um, And by way of history, I'll just give one quick example which should register because I I respect this presentivism issue, but let's take Brown v. Board of Education. Uh, You know, we teach Brown 1 and Brown 2. The reason is, after Brown 1, nobody did anything. State said, we're not doing it. We'll close the schools. Well, we're not doing it. And this is one of the things uh, I think this president is trying to guard against. Uh, There are bureaucracies, you know, judge can order what she or he wants. Uh, You have to deal with bureau prisons. You've got got to deal with it. And they have their own sets of rules. You know, first year law students take this class called administrative law. It's a morass, an ugly morass of of rules that that administrative agencies uh, have extraordinary powers, extraordinary powers. And you have to negotiate through uh, all of that. So uh, uh, the uh, president could have said, "I'm going to commute everyone in the uh, in the federal system." You know, good luck. No, seriously, good luck mm. uh, get, get, getting them out. So, so, so I just I just want to mm. throw that uh, this idea of uh, is there space for pragmatism and political leadership? That doesn't mean that activists shouldn't be. Uh, Screaming bloody murder, right? Because that's going to move agencies and Congress and so forth uh, as well. Other,
7: I just want to jump in on this because I think we we have we've said a few times, and this is this is very correct that the federal whatever we do in the criminal justice system at the federal level is going to have a very limited impact, right? There's there's far fewer federal prisoners, and if you're talking about drugs. Um, Right, marijuana, I mean, this is going to play out Mm -hmm. much more profoundly at the state level Mm -hmm. than the federal level. But I want to push back on one thing about this, and this has to do with this disconnect between the policies on the one hand and maybe even how they're implemented legally on the other end. So it is true that when Obama says there's no more juvenile solitary, that that's not going to impact what's happening in Louisiana, that's true but it's also true, for example, uh, this whole new data-driven policing initiative, which is essentially a policy that says we're gonna deal with the crisis of policing, which by the way is the feeder for those state prisons and that that intense focus on drugs is um, all about relying on data on people who have the most contacts with police mm-hmm. and the most contacts they will, and also with emergency responders and mental health uh, responders. But focuses the solution within the criminal justice system, which is who are the most, who are these people that have the most contact with the police? And then the idea of the policy is that then they won't be policed and arrested, they'll get these other uh, these other resources. But first of all, where are those other resources? So then, in fact, they do end up still getting arrested, probably for low-level marijuana, probably because of the dime bag, probably because of small amounts of cocaine or or opioids or whatever. And so, in fact, those federal policies do have a profound effect Mm -hmm. on these state criminal justice reforms like marijuana reform. So I just wanted to connect those dots a little bit more. It's
3: also the case that over the sweep of of history that the the federal government has been the the innovator on criminal justice and civil rights again and again and again. I mean, the whole, almost all modern policing, the FBI was invented by the federal government and the sort of modern police practices that came from that um, uh, began with the federal government. And so the federal government as model. For a, a better justice system, there's a long history of that. But it is also the case, and it could be, well be that the Obama administration failed in its uh, in, at opportunities to have heralded the opportunity to uh, and the obligation, perhaps, of state governments and local governments to. readdress the way that they did things
7: or in this case literally putting more police on the ground in communities that are already Mm hyper-policed which in turn is going to lead those people to be Mm -hmm. the ones who are in there for drug possession But, but
3: also some of that speaks to i think a gigantic political miscalculation that president obama made that speaks to almost every every assessment of his administration is that and that is that he believed ask this bourgeois a pragmatist and a pretty good constitutional lawyer, though not somebody who ever practiced much law, uh, but well trained by Charles Ogletree nearby. Uh, that, but the President Obama came into office and really, genuinely believed that by adopting uh, certain severe strictures, like uh, a certain approach to immigration, that we're going to deport everybody who definitely crosses a certain line, that that then will give me the room to operate in to take a softer position on a lot of other things, similar approach to criminal justice, and then over time. The folks on the other side, particularly when I'm adopting some of their ideas, will eventually want to work with me. We'll see the merit in this approach. And, of course, exactly the opposite thing came to pass. But but in the boring details of it all, like Ron is referring to, uh, things like a directive from the attorney general out to all U.S. attorneys saying, uh, directing them to no longer uh, double and triple and quadruple prosecute individuals. No, mm-hmm. The practice had been in most federal cases, drug cases, to to charge a defendant with every possible thing uh, and, uh, and to federalize as many cases as possible if there were more severe penalties available in the federal system. Uh, and so the attorney general sends out a directive very quietly at a certain point and says don't do that anymore. He gets a tremendous backlash from the regional U.S. attorneys around the country who, that's not the way we do it and you're going you're gonna, to you're gonna end our ability to fight crime. Uh, and they do all have this tremendous political concern about the consequences of any of these measures. This is why we don't didn't have a President Dukakis. Uh, this is a significant part of why there was not a President Dukakis, was because somebody he let out of prison in the 1980s goes out and, and does a terrible thing. And there's a huge
5: consciousness of that risk uh, uh, in all these measures. Matt? I'm, I'm struck by um, both in this panel, the panel this morning and the panel last night, um, that a part of what we're hearing both from audience members and from each other is a sort of disenchantment with the limitations of the presidency and of the federal government (laughs) specifically to address questions of inequality. Uh, And it strikes me that that's not what it was ever meant to do in the first place. That there's a reason why policing is done at the state level Um, and Mm -hmm. Jim Crow Mm -hmm. was a state level initiative and slavery largely built out of state level laws, and there's a reason why the federal government, but for things like the fugitive slave act, the Northwest Ordinance, and a few other um, fairly prominent laws, um, was never meant to fix problems at the state and local level. And that we're we're dealing with a system that was simply not meant to have a federal solution to questions that we now understand as moral questions. Yeah. And an absent structural change to that that setup, uh, that that executive offices are simply not going to be able to fix this problem. Let's get another question.
3: Let's go to the lady in the red. or <coughs> Chartreuse. Bad Hi there. Colors.
9: <laughs> My name's Stephanie <laughs> and I'm a graduate of the Kennedy School okay. so thank you for coming Herbert. and partaking <laughs> in our policy and showing us what can be done. Um, coral, that's okay. Coral, oh. there, Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, we'll get there. Um, So anyway, um, I'm on a board free speech for people because I believe that money in politics is so corrosive. So Megan, my question is really a follow-up to you when you mentioned that corporations and individuals are really rolling back rights. I'm wondering how we as citizens Mm -hmm. and activists might be able to translate that into values that actually would mean something to the ordinary person as opposed to academics or people fighting on a particular issue. Like, how could we get into black churches and make people understand this issue of money and politics, particularly now that Sanders is no longer talking about it actively, even though Hillary Clinton said she'd support a 28th <coughs> Amendment. So that's my question, is really to focus on money and politics and individual rights, churches. which you say are being rolled back, and making that connection, please. <coughs>
4: Somebody
9: want
6: to take that real quick while I, like, handle this water?
2: Heather, you were about to... Well,
9: I,
7: I was just going to say, I would I would say we need to get into the white churches and make yeah. that point, <laughs> because, because I think you're right. I mean, I think w- what I was really struck by your question is this question of the moral compass. Um, you know, yeah. black folks around this country have had to do a hell of a lot of heavy lifting for a problem that is not of uh, the black community's uh, creation. So... That heavy lifting has got to come. I think I, mean, I love the question because how do we, in fact, start uh, moving in to those white spaces and white churches and white community organizations and white voting uh, groups and sort of and have that moral awakening? That that's who needs the moral awakening.
9: Mm-hmm. Yeah, as they would say. So I'm just saying that there's a broader reach.
3: So, mm-hmm. any idea water, and the com- the, We didn't have a microphone on that, but the yeah. comment was the sort of a story. Uh, when you said you were at a conference recently where there wasn't much diversity, I assume you mean it was mostly white? or, Yeah. Yeah, and for the Amendment, money and politics. yeah it related to money and politics. So.
6: Yeah. That, <clears throat> so, that's tough. Um, I share a lot of the concerns that Heather raised here about. I've, um, i've spent over the last 2 years wanting to rethink right how do we how do we change things and i feel like a lot of the ways especially with the black lives matter movement especially well-intentioned white people have often asked black people to come and talk to different groups and i'm 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 very concerned about uh, the labor that black people do right and so for for people who've already Born the burden of racial injustice and oppression, how much more labor are we asking of them? And is it right for us to, put the, to ask of them to also be the ones to repair the damage of racial injustice? But at, but at the same time, right, I, I hear you in the sense that there's often these spaces in which there's, in which there's a need for different voices, for different perspectives in so many, in some, in so many of these spaces and so you want to get kind of different perspectives and how do we change what people value and what people care about. And oftentimes it is people um, that can do that. I I'm, I'm don't have the perfect answer for you, but I think I think the, the great place to start is for white people to start asking these questions and demanding that we talk more about these issues, right? Um, and for broadening the circle of, of, of people who matter um, and so one of the things I think that has ha- happened a lot, especially over the last year, is that there's specific people in Black Lives Matter that we always go to. But I think that we can expand that a bit to focus on other people as well. Um, and so I think to get, bring other voices to the table, I think some people have borne the, the burden of, of, of at some level translating yep. the injustices of racial oppression more than others. And I think that needs to be distributed more equally. Mm-hmm. But, I, but I love that question, though. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, and if I can add to that, um, because I think that question is applicable to a lot of different issues, not just the money and politics issue. Is that as um, you know, the great civil rights leaders, Wade, leader Wade Henderson would say, "You got to be a friend to make a friend." And I find that, particularly among progressive groups, um, there is a tendency to come to communities of color. And ask folks, um, and this is not my line, I've heard another community activist say this in a criminal justice convening in California, say, you know, we're tired, and this was to funders and progressive leaders and the criminal justice <coughs> reform movement, saying, we're tired of you coming to us just to hold up your signs. We are able to have conversations about strategy and policy, and we have ideas about it, but people just come to us when they want us to hold their signs and when they need bodies, or troops, um, or something like that. So that's one part of it. I think the other part of it is that um, be a friend, to to make a friend, is how is that issue connecting with people? Um, I think particularly among progressives, there's a sense of why are people voting against their own self-interest without kind of making those connections or bringing it to the level where people are really in need of an intervention? because there's something existential or really present that they are facing. Um, On Supreme Court, for example, I think that that is another topic that tends to be very abstract for many folks, uh, for the average voter. I can tell you that as a result of the Supreme Court case, undeciding, leaving undecided the fate of executive actions on immigration, that was a real education for a lot of folks following that case whose lives hang in the balance about the importance of the Supreme Court. But it's very different to experience it that way than to be like, hey, don't you care about the Supreme Court? So I think part of it is being culturally competent to how we engage people. And cultural competence is not just about language, right? About English or Vietnamese or Spanish. It's about cultural competence of what is the context of that community? How are they experiencing those issues? What is the connecting point? And what's their onboarding, meaningful engagement point as well?
2: And if I could just add why uh, it is important uh, so civic education is the headline. Why is it important to engage at the, at, at the mundane uh, or what might seem mundane at the time? Uh, two quick examples. Tamir Rice. Uh, uh, shooter was not indicted. Uh, why? Because the elected district attorney in Cuyahoga County, which is Cleveland, didn't want that person indicted. Because of the activism of Black Lives Matter, he was voted out of office. Right, Um, Michael Brown, number two. Why was it? The backdrop is there's old saying: prosecutors can indict a ham sandwich. They could have gotten indictments if they wanted to. It's a criminally low standard. I think it's problematic, but it it is our standard. Um, You know, people came to me and said, you know, uh, you know, what 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 can we do? Can you? You know, can you file a motion to impel them to uh, re-panel another uh, grand jury? Uh, no, I said. But you can elect a new mm-hmm. district attorney, and the new district attorney, the day of election, the day he swears in, can impanel another grand jury, and 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 do that, right? I mean, again, these sorts of decisions, we can't wait until there are these massive blowups, right? Let's think about it prospectively beforehand uh, and and get engaged. And the Supreme Court, I mean, Citizens United, this is why the Supreme Court matters. And this is why these (laughs) appointments matter, whether you are pro or against it. You know, these have very real consequences that work themselves down in concrete uh, ways. But you're behind the eight ball if you wait until it works itself out in a concrete way that's antagonistic to what you think is a... uh, is, uh, is, is a good use of public resources.
3: I'm, I'm really glad you said that, Ron, because the, uh, I get asked the same question all the time. Well, what can we do about it in this community? And, the, and I'll say, well, I don't know exactly what your issues are here, but you elect the sheriff, and you elect the district attorney. And the sheriff is the person who puts in jail the, the largest number of those two, 2.2 million people. Uh, and the sheriff in every county in America has a great deal of discretion over how that works. Uh, There is discretion over who gets picked up on what, who gets released right off the bat, who really gets prosecuted. There's a tremendous amount of latitude in the community that every citizen lives in, and you can actually have an effect on that. If we all collectively think, and if we're brave enough to think that the 30,000 people whose commutation petitions are before President Obama right now, if we think all those people should be released before he leaves office in three months, then... You know, where the hell are the protesters out in front of the White House demanding the release of those 30,000 people? You know, I haven't seen them. Uh, When the governor of Virginia uh, did this really remarkable thing of uh, pardoning uh, 250,000 felons who who had completed their sentences and were on probation and restored their voting rights, uh, action which was then reversed by the Virginia Supreme Court and then he began a methodical process of repardoning all these folks after doing a different procedure and he's now i think 20 or 30,000 people into that into that process of pardons. Well, I was surprised that there was not a giant chorus of acclaim across the country. I mean, why aren't there more people saying to the governors in other states, why aren't you doing the same? Why aren't democratic governors under incredible pressure to uh, to I mean much much less there ought to be pressure on Republicans to at least consider those things. I think that there's a curious uh, combination of frustration over in the American even among activists there's a kind of timidity about not reflected. That Black Lives Matter is a contradiction to this. A breath a fresh a fresh contradiction to this, but there's a kind of timidity among many Americans about whether they really have any control over the immediate circumstances of their public life. At the same time, there's this huge (laughs) hunger and demand of what these distant national leaders are supposed to accomplish for us. Uh, I think that's a big part of it. That's why so many of us weren't paying attention when this whole legal regime was put in place on the local and state level that ended up incarcerating so many of these people.
2: Uh, Five floors below, right outside this window, a Harvard student could get caught with a dime bag uh, of marijuana. Uh, The officer will take that dime bag, report it to the student's dean, and tell the young person to have a good day. Five miles away in Roxbury, that person will be in handcuffs and in the system. Why? Because one constituency demands that a certain issue be dealt with in one way, Another constituency, uh, regrettably, doesn't have the voice to make that same demand. Let's take the question right here in the front. Can I
7: just get to that, though? I mean, in fairness, I mean, yes, it is true that the police will not arrest the kid at Harvard because there is an assumption and a demand that all holy hell is going to rain down on that police officer should he dare to take that kid to jail, but it's not true with respect that in the black community folks are not demanding on a mm-hmm. daily basis mm-hmm. you know you just got to stand out in front of you know in detroit where i'm from and every time the police roll up and they're and they're Putting someone in the back of the car, the entire community is coming out and saying, uh-huh. "What did he do? Why are you doing this?" And uh-huh. they're and they're saying to the kid, you know, you, you know, call me or what can uh-huh. we do? Or uh-huh. so I, I do feel like it again. It comes down to it's about power. It goes to that uh-huh. power. The, the point that you mentioned. It's about money. It's about power. But it's certainly I don't feel it's not about people speaking out.
2: Uh-huh. Yeah, but but it's it, it, it's how they speak out, which goes to the point of civic education. Uh, and it's it's, it's going to, to to vote for particular people who do exercise the discretion and so forth. I agree Th- these communities I grew up in one where you know we can complain uh, bitterly, uh, but then uh, that complaint didn't register at the ballot box for a whole host of structural reasons. mind you, but uh, it's uh, you know uh, 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 Paul uh, from Georgetown, a, a law professor, he av- butler. butler you know he advocated this thing where we have these huge meetings in, in, in D.C. where, uh, where con- the community is taught that if you're a juror, just don't convict. Don't convict on nonviolent drug crimes, because that'll send a message to them to stop to stop picking on certain communities disproportionately. That's the sort of thing, I, that's the sort of thing I'm talking about. Yeah. Didn't mean to cut you off.
3: Oh, me, same, me too. But let's take a question here from the lady at the front. <clears throat>
7: Hi, thank you all for your comments. Um, my name is Cara Matthews. I work over at the business school, looking, working on a project looking at the history of African Americans at the business school. And I'm, I want to build off of your comment of money and power are really at the root of a lot of this, and pose the question of whether or not, um, within the context of our foundation being built on money and power, built on
4: free land or stolen land and forced labor, Will we ever have a moment in our civil rights dialogue where we talk about reparations for African
7: American people without laughing, without saying that will never happen? Will there ever be a real conversation to rectify the history of economic, social, political oppression in a form of economics? Will we be able to do that?
3: Megan, that speaks to your current project to some degree. Want to take a crack?
6: I'll take a crack at it. I think there's been different moments in which we have had substantive discussions about it. They've been fleeting and like short-lived and not, I think, as entrenched in the dialogue as I would like to see. Um, I think moving forward, I, I, I don't ever not hold out hope that we will actually have a much longer discussion about reparations and perhaps legislation um, and or some real policy responses around that. I think part of what is needed, I mean, I think we have already right now what is needed, but I think what can help actually push this forward is what's going on right now, right? So if you look at um, the Black Lives Matter pol- policy platform, one of the one of the six kind of forms that they actually call it to is economic reparations, right? And so not just thinking, I mean, not just thinking slavery, but I think that's an incredibly important area to think about. But the different ways in which uh, native land has been disposed, I mean, has has been taken, has been stolen, right? Thinking about the different ways in which. Um, Black communities and different communities of color um, in which different things have been taken and which different things are owed, um, I, th- I, I hope that this discussion continues on. In terms of reparations for slavery, I think some of the work that is being done right now and that has already been done, like there's good work in history. Like it's not like, oh, we don't know who these individuals are. We can't commodify. We uh, in terms of like bales of cotton, we we know these things, um, but I think another area of work that I'm now invested in with a number of a, n- number of other people is wanting to understand the industries the industries that still survive today, that profited off of convict labor um, in the in, in the post Civil War era, in, in particular, right? So C sugar, for example, white and white and pink at the grocery store, um, that is right from convict labor in the South. Um, also thinking about U.S. Steel, J.P. Morgan. That is from convict labor mm-hmm. in the South. Tennessee Coal and Iron Railroad Company. That's where the that money actually comes from. So wanting to trace these processes, and then I think the hope for some who are working in that area right now is to hold these organizations, these corporations, accountable um, for loss that has happened before then. I know it's a kind of a business, business school areas that a number of insurance companies. I'm sure you're well aware, Aetna being one of them, right? Insured slaveholders. I'm poor slaves, right? And so is there something that should be owed? What is owed, I think, is always an important to que- question to ask, but I do think that moving forward, I think that we hit this kind of moment in the 80s and the 90s where everybody was like, yeah, and then like 2008, we were like, oh, <laughs> oh yeah, like we're good. <laughs> um, and then now it's not that case where like, whoa, whoa, there's like these deeply entrenched racial injustices, right, and like, I think black people and a lot of people of color everywhere have been like, there's never been a long period of time in which black people were not being murdered by law enforcement officers. Like, that's for people to be like, oh, this is so crazy. Is it crazy? Yeah. Because I don't remember a time, right? right. Um, so I, I think that people are engaging in this long history more than they did before. Um, but I think it will take time, but I think that discussion is an important one to have.
3: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I'll add one thing to that and then we have to finish, and that is that uh, uh, this notion that even the, the, that there's more terrorism today than there's ever been before. I, I tweeted out after the, you know, the horrible <laughs> events in Orlando, uh, and lots of other people made e- similar comments, that, but that was by far not the most... The, the, the most violent or the, the, mm-hmm. the highest number of American citizens killed by a terrorist in any incident. If we go back and just go to Chicago in 1919, go out mm-hmm. in the Mississippi Delta uh, in the years before that, you know, Rosewood, Rosewood huge numbers of people killed. Um, but there was, and some of those issues became part of the big reparations discussion prior to 2001 uh, that was uh, largely directed by Dr. Charles Ogletree, you know, here, here at the law school. Um, in fact, I, I was with Dr. Ogletree In July of uh, July or late August, two thousand one, at the UN conference on racism in Durban, South Africa. Others here might have even been there. Controversial at the time because the Bush administration uh, barred Secretary Powell from taking a delegation to that conference. Um, But and that was the peak of the reparations movement that was so fertile at that time. I used to joke then that that until that movement. Uh, no one had ever said the word reparations in America who wasn't wearing a dashiki, you know. The, and, you know, everybody, you know, anybody who was in any fashion mainstream, you know, would just scoffed at the notion of reparations. But there was a serious conversation happening. In fact, in Durban, during that meeting, there was a meeting in the Durban City Hall, an extraordinary memory of mine, um, that the entire membership of the Congressional Black Caucus was there. Uh, a, a, there may be people in the room who were there, remarkable constellation of African-American leaders and and, and others who were in the room uh, to discuss the reparations uh, uh, topic. Ogletree was trying to win over more leaders. And Jesse Jackson makes a surprise appearance uh, and walks into the room. And if you know any of this, this history, Uh, Reverend Jackson historically was very opposed to the notion of reparations, viewed it as a great distraction from the movement, as did many very important civil rights leaders in the past. And he walks into the room, and as always with Reverend Jackson, he took over the space uh, uh, completely, uh, took a microphone, began talking, and then as he was speaking at a certain point, he said, all of you know I have always opposed the movement embracing reparations, but my views have changed. Uh, he said the the quest, the fight for reparations must become a central objective of the civil rights movement in America. And as we do that, other things must fall away. And it was a it was an extraordinary moment. I, I really thought, okay, I'm witnessing a a turn uh, that is going to be highly consequential. And then two days later, we all got on planes, flew back to New York, and the and two days after that, the planes crashed in the World Trade Center, uh, and nobody heard the word reparations expressed again for a long time. Uh, and so, but I think we are now back to a moment that uh, there may be serious consideration about whatever form that may take. Uh, but there's a much more serious discussion of it. Um, did you want to say one last thing, Matt? And then yeah, we'll... I
5: just wanted to say that I think that institutions like this, like Harvard, like Brown, like Georgetown, those are places where that conversation is happening, uh, and students are intimately involved in both driving the conversation and in defining justice comprehensively enough so that institutions can be responsive. And I, I. Applaud the work that you're doing and encourage you to keep doing it. Not that you needed the applause the encouragement, but you have it anyway. But um,
3: uh, thank you all very much. We enjoyed it. Thank, and thank the panelists.